I'm Clive Hamilton, an Australian academic and author. Uh, my last two books were uh, Requiem for a Species, Why We Resist the Truth About Climate Change, and more recently published last year a book on geoengineering called um, Earth Masters, The Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering. What is geoengineering? Well, geoengineering is a range of technologies uh, aimed at uh, offsetting the effects of climate change. Uh, they fall into two broad classes, uh, these so-called um, carbon dioxide removal methods and the solar radiation management methods. And there are, you know, uh, a couple of dozen uh, in each of those uh, classes. Uh, the carbon dioxide removal methods uh, aim to uh, uh, suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere one way or another, uh, fix it in some safer form and uh, perhaps bury it underground or under the oceans uh, in perpetuity, it's hoped. Um, solar radiation uh, management involves a number of schemes uh, whose object is to reduce the amount of solar radiation or sunlight reaching the Earth's surface and uh, thereby to cool the planet. Uh, solar radiation management methods, of course, are not uh, tackling climate change at source, but attempting to deal with one of the uh, symptoms the major symptom of um, human-induced climate change, and that is the warming of the globe. Uh, but it doesn't uh, deal with the other uh, symptoms of um, excessive greenhouse gas emissions, notably the acidification of the oceans. The thing that alarmed me reading Earthmasters is how far progressed the science and the politics around geoengineering are. Can you give us a sense of, of, of where it's at now? Well, scientists, climate scientists and others have dabbled in geoengineering schemes for 20 or so years, but it was only really in 2006 when the famous scientist Paul Crutzen, who won a Nobel Prize for his work on the hole in the ozone layer, published an article saying the situation is so dire that we need a plan B and therefore we need to begin a major research program solar radiation management known as sulfate aerosol spraying. And since that article appeared, uh, Crutzen, given his eminence, uh, um, broke the taboo amongst climate scientists in talking about and researching geoengineering and there has been um, a huge growth in uh, publications in scientific journals on a range of geoengineering schemes. So there's now a significant community of climate scientists studying geoengineering schemes um, and publishing their results in professional journals, but also in the, the grey literature, uh, range of conferences, uh, and in fact, it's, so much momentum has been generated that the IPCC, in its recent uh, fifth assessment report, 
has for the first time included an evaluation of geoengineering as a response to climate change. On the political front, I think it's true to say that the taboo on talking about geoengineering remains. I mean, we can imagine, for example, if, say, President Obama said that, well, America's response to climate change will be to uh, research a program of uh, coating the earth with a layer of sulfate aerosols to reduce the amount of sunlight reaching the surface. Now, there'd be uproar and mayhem and the United States would be accused legitimately of shirking its responsibilities of refusing to tackle this threat except through these um, uh, Dr. Strangelove kinds of uh, technologies. So there's a big taboo politically on talking about uh, geoengineering in public, although we know that in private, on the uh, Capitol Hill in the United States, for example, and indeed here in uh, Parliament in Canberra, there are politicians, principally conservative ones, who are um, in their offices uh, speculating on uh, the desirability of uh, geoengineering as a substitute or a complement to uh, emission reduction methods which you know, they concede are manifestly inadequate. But perhaps a more interesting development on the politics of it, uh, whilst it's not part of the mainstream political debate, there are a number of um, uh, right-wing think tanks in the United States um, who are uh, taking seriously the uh, geoengineering response to climate change. And to the best of your knowledge, is, is it actually, has it actually happened on any meaningful scale anywhere in the world yet? No, it hasn't. There have been a few experiments uh, carried out, particularly with the geoengineering scheme known as ocean iron fertilisation, which we can talk about in a moment if you think that's worthwhile. But in the atmosphere, there have been uh, no serious experiments carried out on any geoengineering scheme. And I should stress that this is despite the claims of the so-called chemtrails activists who uh, have been um, claiming uh, for many years that uh, the government and they often don't specify which government it is. It's just a sort of generalised government, some kind of oppressive force. Uh, or perhaps it's the, the UN engaged in the spraying of chemicals out of the backs of uh, commercial and military aircraft over wide areas. Um, they never really say what kind of chemicals, um, but these chemicals are sprayed by the government in order to destroy crops uh, or control our, our mines one way or another. So these chemtrails conspiracy theories should be dismissed out of hand. We are, after all, serious about science and there are no uh, serious scientists, no cloud physicists or other kind of atmospheric scientists who can find any evidence whatever for these kinds of chemtrails uh, claims. So, uh, so we should not be misled by chemtrails activists who've, who've, who've leapt on 
geoengineering as some kind of vindication of their crazy um, claims. What do the solutions that geoengineering offers tell us about the mindset that got us into the climate mess in the first place? There are a range of views and worldviews within the what might be called the geoengineering community. I mean, if you look at someone like Paul Crutzen, um, who has been called the um, caretaker of life on the planet, um, he's uh, a man who is deeply anxious about the implications of climate change, but believes the um, major nations of the earth are so uh, incapable of responding adequately that we're going to end up with some kind of uh, climate emergency that, if not stopped, would lead to catastrophe and therefore we must have this plan B. But what we see, in fact, is the climate engineering debate, so far as it's carried out scientifically, uh, heavily influenced by a particular kind of American technocratic thinking. The idea that humankind has intervened uh, largely successfully in natural systems uh, for a very long time, why should we not uh, attempt to regulate uh, the Earth's climate system as a whole, uh, that we can generate uh, technological means to exercise control over the climate system, which, given the links of the climate system to other parts of the Earth system, means exercising control over the Earth uh, in its entirety. And in writing my book, Earth Masters, I traced some very interesting and uh, multifarious links between many prominent scientists, particularly in the United States, working on geoengineering and the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which was, along with Los Alamos, uh, one of the two principal nuclear weapons research facilities in the Cold War. And there are a lot of links of personnel and uh, research associations. In fact, one of the first uh, papers to uh, advocate sulfate aerosol spraying was written uh, by Edward Teller, the godfather of the United States' nuclear weapons program in the Cold War and a virulent anti-communist who believed that the power of the United States lies above all in its um, control over massive uh, natural forces, in his case in the form of the hydrogen bomb and various nuclear uh, weapons. And there's a similar kind of mindset, and that is that humankind is uh, the species on Earth that has the capacity and possibly the right to uh, develop these extraordinarily powerful forms of technological intervention, this control of massive powers. Um, and this kind of thinking naturally links weapons research in the Cold War to some kinds, and I stress 
only some kinds of uh, geoengineering, notably sulfate aerosol spraying, the idea that we can coat the earth in the upper atmosphere with a uh, permanently supplemented layer of sulfate particles, tiny particles, that would uh, turn down by one or two or three percent the amount of sunlight that would reach the Earth's surface and thereby control the temperature of the Earth and the climate system as a whole. What ethical issues does geoengineering raise? What are the key ethical concerns for you? Well, first of all, it should be said that for someone like Paul Crutzen, one of the most profound ethical problems is the impact of global warming itself and the unequal effect that it will have the poor and vulnerable of the world will be harmed most by human-induced global warming and therefore we have a duty to be able to stop that if we can through technological means. When it comes to geoengineering itself and particularly those schemes and I I must stress that it's, some schemes are more benign than this, but we're focusing on the ones that um, aim to regulate the climate system of the Earth as a whole. These schemes, as immediately you start to think about, have some profound ethical dilemmas. If humankind has the capacity to intervene in the Earth's climate system so as to regulate the temperature of the planet, then we have to ask who are these human beings who are going to do this? It will not be uh, some democratic, uh, perhaps UN-based uh, decision-making process. It's much more likely to be a technological system of control in the hands of one or a small number of powerful nations, such as China, Russia, or the United States. And so if one government um, has the power to instruct a group of scientists or engineers to turn the Earth's thermostats down a bit, down a bit more, no, up a bit more than that, I mean, whose interests are they going to be thinking of when they uh, adjust the thermostat? Uh, not the interests of the Bangladeshi peasants uh, facing rising sea levels. Uh, not the Indian Pakistani rice farmers uh, who may be severely affected by some shift in the monsoon, which is one of the possible impacts of sulfate aerosols. Well, but also, we have to remember that generals have always dreamed of controlling the weather. Uh, here we're going from weather, which is a local phenomenon, to the climate of the Earth as a whole. And so we can expect the whole process to be militarised, or at a minimum, have profound geostrategic implications. One further ethical dilemma within a terrible tangle of ethical dilemmas is the role of expert scientists who will be those who possess a highly specialized knowledge 
which uh, they will transmit to their political masters, which those masters will use to make decisions about where to set the Earth's thermostat. And so we have a situation in which the well-being of everyone on the planet would essentially lie in the hands of a group of technocrats based somewhere, you know, in the Arizona deserts or, you know, in some um, nondescript facility on the outskirts of Shanghai. You can see that this uh, generates uh, severe ethical dilemmas and explains why a grouping of um, nations of the South have started to move in international fora, uh, not uh, notably the Convention on Biodiversity, to, uh, uh, to develop uh, methods of regulating research into geoengineering technologies. You write in the book of the connections between geoengineers, <coughs> oil companies, uh, neoliberal economic uh, economists and politicians. Does this sort of ultimate manifestation of uh, turning the biggest challenge we've faced in terms of climate change into uh, an opportunity for t for new technologies. Is it, it felt to me like the like the last stand of business as usual. And does that actively undermine the the pursuit for international agreement on climate change? Well, first, it's important to stress that um, there are some. Um, people engaged in geoengineering research uh, who um, find abhorrent the idea that geoengineering should be used as a substitute for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. They have been driven into research uh, in geoengineering because they believe that plan A, cutting greenhouse gas emissions, will not work in time and therefore we need a plan B. But there are others with uh, less noble motivations who see geoengineering, particularly sulfate aerosol spraying, as a substitute for cutting greenhouse gas emissions, as a way of protecting the political economic system from the kind of change, uh, from the kind of power shift that a new energy economy based on zero and very low emissions energy technologies would entail. Of course, Measures to cut greenhouse gas emissions are not going to be especially difficult economically around the world, but they are going to challenge, they are challenging the market and political power of perhaps the most powerful corporations on earth, the oil and coal companies and those heavily dependent on fossil fuel energy. And so... We are seeing um, some of those fossil fuel companies dip their toes into this emerging area of geoengineering research. It's important to stress that it is not the case that the whole thing has been run by the oil companies, that they are somehow pulling the strings um, from behind a curtain of invisibility. They're not. This uh, whole push towards geoengineering has come quite independently, but having seen it emerge, the oil companies are starting to just um, 
undertake small engagements in it. Shell, for example, and BP and ConocoPhillips have made small investments in certain kinds of geoengineering research. Uh, Murray Edwards, a bit, a bit more insidiously, Murray Edwards, a, a uh, tar sands billionaire in Canada, um, has invested in uh, a company uh, owned or founded by David Keith, perhaps the principal scientific advocate of geoengineering research, um, a company called Carbon Engineering Limited, which is developing air capture technologies. And so Murray Edwards can see that uh, it may well be the case um, if his tar sands investments succeed and uh, lock in massive amounts of carbon dioxide emissions for decades to come, that the earth in desperation may well turn to these geoengineering uh, companies and uh, he wants a little bit of a, a slice of that action too. So he's in a way uh, hedging his bets. One other thing that's important to mention here is that there's been a flurry of patents taken out by private corporations and individuals over a range of geoengineering technologies. Um, but the scientists themselves, uh, entrepreneurs, some companies who can just see a commercial opportunity if uh, the earth shift towards geoengineering. Uh, there's one important company in this called Intellectual Ventures, run by a man called Nathan Mervold, who was chief technology officer at Microsoft. And uh, there are a range of heavy hitters in the geoengineering community who have a financial or other stake in intellectual ventures. And that company has taken out patents on more than one uh, technology for regulating the global climate. And I think this, uh, of course, uh, raises some very serious ethical concerns that private corporations should own the intellectual property for regulating the uh, climate of the earth as a whole. Um, our, our theme on the Transition Network website this month that this uh, interview sits as part of is around health uh, and transitions relation to promoting health locally. What are the public health implications of, of geoengineering? The health implications of geoengineering depend heavily on which kind of technology we're talking about. If we're talking about um, biologically based air capture, or sorry, carbon dioxide capture from the ambient air, so technologies like growing trees or algae, capturing the carbon dioxide that way and uh, burying it somewhere underground for a very long time, then the health implications are probably minimal. And of course, they have to be weighed against the massive health implications of uh, climate change, uh, which are already very apparent and will become much more severe. When we're talking about other grander technologies, and again, I'm thinking of sulfate aerosol spraying, which is kind of the landmark technology here. It's a complex question. Uh, on the one hand, 
by reducing the amount of global warming, and this is a technology that would be very effective at doing that, um, it would have health benefits. On the other hand, it's going to have side effects uh, that could be very damaging to health to people around the world. For instance, I, as I mentioned, it's thought it may shift the Indian monsoon, which is vital to the food supplies for some billion people living in Pakistan and India. Um, it's thought that sulfate aerosol spraying will cause severe damage to the ozone layer with potential serious health impacts. So there's no general answer to that question. Each technology needs to be investigated to evaluate the kinds of effects on human health and indeed animal and plant health. One of the people who's who's a, a, an advocate for, for geoengineering who on the surface at least is on the kind of uh, or historically has been on the good side of these things is Stuart Brand in the whole earth discipline who uh, who is part of a group of people who call themselves eco-pragmatists who argue that GM and nuclear and geoengineering are good because science shows that they work um, and who would brand yourself and myself no doubt as Luddites or anti-science for even having qualms about geoengineering what filters do you believe that we should put new technologies through before suggesting their widespread use? Well, Stuart Brand is part of this interesting and, in my view, quite worrying new grouping of eco-pragmatists who essentially say, look, humankind uh, is the technological animal. Uh, our technology has produced very great benefits and advantages in the past. Uh, why should we not go for broke, develop the technologies and uh, use them to take control of the earth as a whole and to regulate it? I don't know what's happened to Stuart Brand. I don't know whether he, he stopped smoking something, but... He's really undergone a sort of quite a dramatic uh, transformation because you can see that uh, Stuart Brand and his whole Earth catalogue all those years ago had a different kind of social formation, a different kind of social vision than the uh, capitalist, uh, private greed oriented and consumerist society that we had when he first wrote, which we have on steroids now, because the kind of vision that he puts forward, along with the eco-pragmatists in the United States, is essentially a powerful defense of the status quo. These people argue that uh, the bearers and implementers of technology are private corporations, and so it behoves environmentalists to get on board with uh, capitalism, even capitalism red and tooth and claw, and provide the financial incentives for corporations to pursue the cheapest and perhaps the most technologically advanced option, which may well be using sulfate aerosol spraying instead of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So I see them as essentially 
uh, a new group of apologists for the prevailing uh, economic and political order, uh, people who claim to be environmentalists, uh, but in fact have a vision of environmentalism, which is uh, not much more than painting a very pale green tinge on the prevailing economic and political system, which is the system which has given us the problem, which is the system which is fiercely resisting, responding to the science of climate change in the way we know it must. So to see the eco-pragmatists become the handmaids of those who have caused the problem and have acted so vigorously to stop the world responding to the problem in the uh, most uh, appropriate and effective way that it's reducing greenhouse gas emissions really leaves me breathless. You've written four books now about climate change and next December in Paris uh, is COP21, the latest round of the COP negotiations. We interviewed Sir David King here recently, who's the, the, the who was the chief scientific advisor here in the UK, who was very positive, feeling that that this was the time that something would come out of, 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 of this process. Is your sense that anything useful may come out of it? And what for you feels like uh, what needs to come out of that process in order to be meaningful? It's easy to be pessimistic about international political processes. Uh, God knows we have... Uh, plethora, uh, plethora of evidence of failure and notably Copenhagen which uh, left everyone feeling so depressed environmental activists could barely get off the ground for a year or two. But I think we have to remember that, that history um, is often extremely unpredictable and there can be a gathering of forces for action that aren't necessarily apparent. Uh, we can point to uh, potentially um, helpful trends. Uh, of course, we can point to many depressing trends. Uh, one of the more hopeful trends is that there's definite progress in certain crucial nations notably China. I think the Chinese government takes climate change very seriously and if um, an entente can be reached, particularly with the United States, then I think some major steps could be made. It's also true that there have been some quite marked technological breakthroughs in the last two or three years uh, that uh, are certainly making the task of the technological transition easier once the world does really get serious about it. So, I mean, I, I'm not ruling it out. I, I mean, I guess if we put our physical realist hats on, or more particularly if we're, if we're betting a, a large amount of our own money on it, we bet against any substantial breakthrough happening in Paris, but who knows? I mean, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm Mr. Pessimism, having written uh, *Requiem for a Species*, a book that most people, when they read it, sends them into 
you know, a deep depressive funk for three to six months because it spoke the truth. You know, I'm not a pessimistic person, uh, but you know, there's a point when um, healthy illusions become dangerous delusions. And some of those who maintain their healthy illusions for far too long in the face of the evidence were, you know, my friends, environmentalists who are naturally optimistic people and really were not taking note of what the scientists were really saying. But I think the last two years, most environmental activists, climate activists, now kind of get it. And the mood in the environment movement globally has shifted quite markedly towards a much more realistic conception of, uh, of where we're at and where we're likely to go. A requiem for a species suggested that runaway climate change is all but inevitable. Uh, is there a point in that process where you would consider geoengineering an option? And if so, which, which technology would you, um, would you favour? How bad does it have to get before, before Clive Hamilton thinks, oh, sod it, go on then? <laughs> the, I don't think you can give... Um, I mean, people say to me, well, are you for it or against it? And, uh, geoengineering, that is. And having written Earth Masters, you know, I clearly... I, I, I'm a sceptic. That is, I, I'm not convinced that uh, the, the technologies... Uh, if we're thinking particularly of sulfate aerosol spraying, um, could be implemented in the foreseeable future in a way that wouldn't carry massive problems that would outweigh the benefits. But as the Earth heats, uh, the, the, the attraction of radical technological intervention uh, will grow because the need to make some kind of uh, plan B response um, could become desperate. Now, I think it's impossible to say wh when that point uh, will come. Nevertheless, I recognise there are circumstances in which the situation may be so dire that uh, the world, of course, the question is, what do we mean by the world, um, decides that uh, these risky technologies simply have to be used. And, you know, I may be in a position where, you know, I have to, with heavy heart and deep anxiety, say, on balance, it has to be done. What can people do about it? Well, the first thing is to become informed. And uh, that's why I wrote my book, uh, because at, before I wrote my book, there were a few reports being written by scientific or quasi-scientific organisations, all of which said we must have a massive research program, one controlled by elite scientists without any oversight, essentially. Um, and then there were a whole bunch of scientific papers, which are really beyond the reach of uh, most laypersons. And there were a couple of popular books uh, which were a bit of gee whizzery. Um, get a much better idea of what geoengineering is scientifically, what the politics of it are, what the forces gathering behind it are. 
So once they become informed, uh, of course, that's a continuing process. They have to think what to do about it organizationally. And there um, are a couple of groups starting to uh, work on it, in particular the ETC group or etc. group, which is based in Canada, has been campaigning for a while. But I think it's also important for people who are members of environment groups, Greenpeace, Royal Society of Birds or Friends of the Earth or local groups, um, to start getting their organisations involved. Most environment organisations, large and small, in the United States and in Australia, really don't want to talk about it. And the reasons are kind of complex. Uh, one reason is that they feel as though that if they start talking about it, they will validate wider discussion of geoengineering, which they don't want to do. Um, others feel as though they have so much on their plate that uh, they don't want, they don't have the resources or the capacity to get across geoengineering. Others believe that as long as it's not on the political agenda, there's no point in them uh, diverting people and resources to it because there's no one to lobby yet. Um, and uh, others in the United States are often dependent on funding sources that uh, that are they acquire for particular projects and they have enough trouble getting money for the things they want to do. They don't think they could go and get money for things they don't particularly want to do. So the reasons are complex, but I think sooner or later, the environment groups are going to have to come to grips with geoengineering and they should uh, do so sooner rather than later because the whole thing is gathering uh, so much momentum that every environmentalist is going to have to take well-informed stance uh, on the issue. So that's what I would urge uh, people to do. And the last question was, what does geoengineering potentially mean for democracy? What are the implications uh, around democracy, both within nation states, but also globally? Well, certainly, if a technology is developed that has the capacity to regulate the climate system, the Earth as a whole, well, I only have to say it, don't I? I mean, immediately your mind runs off. Uh, well, who's going to control it? Uh, whom are they going to consult? Will it be run by the military? What happens if it goes wrong? Uh, what role will the UN have in it? Uh, will there be some kind of international regulation? Uh, it's one thing to turn the thermostat down, but uh, what if it all goes pear-shaped and has to be and the system has to be stopped. Who's going to make all of those decisions? And, um, but I think the more immediate problem is not the question of who will control the technologies when they're deployed. Who is controlling the research? I don't think it's wise to oppose all research into geoengineering technologies as a matter of principle. The more important question is who has oversight in the research program? Um, which bodies um, have the role to play in regulating it and in setting the direction? At the moment, it's essentially 
private organizations, scientists, uh, some government researchers in China and Russia, for example. And the people who would perhaps be affected most by geoengineering should it ever eventuate, uh, people in countries of the South. And so I think the urgent issue is to bring some democratic control over uh, the research program that is happening uh, around the world at the moment. And at the, uh, as, we, as things stand, uh, a number of those countries of the South, as I mentioned, are using international forums like the London Convention on Ocean Dumping and the uh, Convention on Biological Diversity to really put a damper on research in geoengineering. Well, what I think need is some kind of international regulatory process that would allow the nations of the world to have some uh, oversight, perhaps even just beginning with a register and transparency of global uh, research efforts, uh, but leading to uh, an institution that would have more direct regulatory control. And my own preference would be, given, I mean, context of this is that at the moment there is effectively no international law governing not merely the research, but even the deployment of sulfate aerosol spraying, for example. You know, any country can do it now, and there is no international law to stop them. And in fact, you know, a billionaire with a messiah complex like Richard Branson could start doing it next week. Um, and so what I think we need is some international instrument uh, to uh, govern the development of this technology. And for my money, uh, the best avenue would be to develop a protocol governing geoengineering to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change.